We're going to be this morning back in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We've been walking through a series called The Blessed Life. We've been looking at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the prelude, the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most popular sermon. They're found in Matthew chapter 5, or it's found in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. Hopefully by now, we've all been able to read that together, and you've been able to see the impact that this sermon um, is willing to make if you will just take the time to process it, to internalize it, and then even to apply it to your life. Uh, but we've been in this series called The Blessed Life, and what we've been asking is, what does the blessed life look like? What we've been asking is how do we, as men and women who profess to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, how do we uh, exist uh, and, and become the men and women that God has designed us to be? And today what we're going to look at is that God has designed us to be pure in heart. That's the sixth beatitude, and it's here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. It says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, every single soul in this room is alike in one area. And that is that we all are on a quest to see God. In fact, when all of this is said and done, the one thing that you hold in common and I hold in common is that we all, when all this is said and done, we want to see God. That's the entire quest of our life. As people of faith, we want to get to the end of this and be able to say that we are reunited, reunited with the one who created us. We want to see God. But the question on the table this morning is, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to see God? To see him means to, to, to know him. To see him means that you know him in a personal and an intimate way. To, to see him means that you are admitted into his presence. That's, that's how you translate this word, to see him, to, to be admitted into the presence of God. It's when God removes the blinders from our eyes so that we can begin to see him for who, for who he truly is. Let me give you this example as a way of making this clear to you. Miss Bailey Peck, she is a member of our church. She's one of our kids here. She belongs to Charlie and Leah Peck over here. Uh, Miss Bailey was at our house one evening, and she had come up to me and she said, hey, Trey, have you ever heard of a stereogram? And I told her, no, I've never heard of a stereogram. I don't even know what that is. And then she brings out her phone and she shows me basically what I remember as a child as being the fuzzy channel, right? You remember when you turned on the TV, the analog TV, and it, just black and white dots are everywhere and they're shaking and they make this awful sound, right? And you know that you're trying to find a channel that actually works well that's what the picture she showed me looked like all right was this this fuzzy picture black and white dots everywhere and they're just kind of moving around and she's like Trey just stare at it long enough stare at it for like 30 seconds and, and tell me what you see so I stood or I stared at this uh what's it called stereogram well, it makes real sick now um so I, I stared at this stereogram for 30 to 60 seconds and she kept asking me what do you see what do you see what do you see and I kept telling her nothing Bailey, I see black and white dots, and I see them jumping around. No, you, you don't see anything in 30 more seconds. So we did this, what seemed like, for like an hour. All right, we just kept doing this over and over and over. And I kept telling her the same verdict, like, I don't see anything. And she finally said, you don't see the singer? I'm like, no, Bailey, I don't see a singer. Uh, I'm, at this point, I'm thinking, like, are you hallucinating? <laughs> What's going on? I'm about to call your parents. Uh, so she, she said, you don't see the singer? Now, now, look, 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 do you see the drummer? Look, look, now do you see the guitar? And I'm like, Bailey, I don't see any of that. And she said, well, if you stare at it long enough, 
you have to hold it like this and hold it like this. And she kept trying to do this thing to make me see what she was seeing, and I could not see it. Well, being the wise guy that I am, I actually took her phone and I sent what she, the link that she had over to my phone. And then when she left the room because I couldn't see it, I, I actually took out my phone and I stood, stared at it for like another hour trying to see this image because I was bound and determined either she's crazy or, or there's really something in this. And, and by that time, my other daughter had come down and she was like, I see it, I see it. So they're all excited about being able to make out what was in this picture and I couldn't see any of it. Well... Kayla was folding clothes or something that night, so I just kept looking at my phone. Um, that's what good husbands do. We don't participate in the folding of clothes. We stare at our phones. So I was staring at my phone, and finally, finally, after a long, long time, I can't even tell you how much time I wasted on this, but finally I was able to see a face. And as soon as I was able to see the face, it disappeared. I was like, well, that was a bummer. I mean, that, that didn't do anything. And so I kept staring and staring. Finally, after even further... I was able to finally see the, the, the guitarist and able to see the person singing, and it all started to make sense to me. But here's the thing. When I started to see the picture for the very first time, my, my, my soul literally lit on fire. Like, I was so excited that I was finally able to make sense of what they were telling me, that they weren't lying to me. I was able to see it. But here's the reality of the situation. The picture that Bailey put in front of my face was there the whole time. I just couldn't adjust my eyes to see it. And finally, when I was able to go and see it, I didn't hold that and contain that to myself. I wanted to go share that with other people. In fact, I started searching to see more stereograms so that I could see if I could find those, you know, what was hidden in those pictures as well. And the same thing is true here. There were Pharisees and there were Sadducees that were in the crowd while Jesus was teaching. Jesus was actually right in front of the people. But the people couldn't actually make sense of who he was. They couldn't see him for who he was. They saw him per se, but none of them were able to truly see him. See, not all of them understood him. Not all of them understood him and knew him personally, knew him intimately. Why? Because seeing him, the Bible says, is reserved for the pure in heart. What's meant by this word heart? He uses this sentence, blessed are the pure in heart. What actually is meant by this word heart? The heart is the very center of our being. It's the center of our personality. It's the core, the essence of who we are. The heart, by the way, is the fount by which all things flow. You've heard of, um, I guess it was what, Matthew chapter 12, the, the common verse that says, out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is the fount by which all things flow. When Matthew chapter 12 there, where Jesus says that, out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. How many of you have ever said something to someone and you regretted it and you went to them and you said something like this, you know, I didn't mean what I said. Well, well, if you ask Jesus, Jesus is going to say to you, no, you actually did mean what you said. Out of an overflow of your heart, your mouth spoke what your heart truly felt. See, sometimes our, our mouth becomes a window so that we can see our hearts. The things we say show us how wicked and deceitfully wicked our heart really is. So it's not that we didn't mean it. It's just, man, I didn't know that wickedness really resided there. And maybe for the first time you're recognizing, you know, I say some harsh things to my spouse. I say some harsh things to my kids. I say some harsh things to people I don't like. I, I, I might not speak them, but I, I type them on, on social media. Or, or I, I type them through, you know, different platforms. And all of a sudden, that's a window for you to see the wickedness of your own heart. The heart is an overflow. It's a, it's a fount by which everything else 
flows. Our reactions flow from our heart. Our impulses flow from our heart. Our urges flow from our heart. Our aspirations and yearnings, all of them flow from the heart. See, the heart here that Jesus has in mind, it's the totality of man. It's not an organ that pumps blood within your body. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the totality of man. It's the inner disposition of man. That includes the mind. It includes the soul. It also includes the emotions. All of us, the totality of us. When he says this word heart, he's talking about the center of who we are. And what Jesus is really trying to get across to us is this. He's saying the only people that will see God are those who have God at the center of their lives. So my question for you and myself really this morning is simply this. Is God at the center of your life? How do I know, Trey? How do I know if God is at the center of my life? Answer this question. Is the glory of God your greatest delight? Can you honestly say with integrity this morning that the glory of God is what I live and exist and breathe for? That if there's nothing that I want, if there's nothing that I do while while I live here on this earth, the one thing that I hope to accomplish is bring much glory and delight to the Lord. The other way of saying this is, is God prioritized above all things, all people in your life? Is he prioritized in your time and the way that you spend it? Is he prioritized in your talent and the way that you use the gifts that God has given you? Is he prioritized even with your treasure and what you do with the things that God has entrusted to you? I mean, are you serving him faithfully? Are you using his gifts the way that he intended for you to use them, which was within the context of his bride, the local church? Are you even faithful to his bride? Are you faithful in your witness? I mean, if you're answering maybe or or no to any of these questions, then, then there's a good chance that God is not at the center of your life. See, see, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now that we understand who, what, what he means by the word heart, what does he mean by this word pure? This word pure can be translated a, a bunch of different ways, so let's kind of break it down in its simplest terms this morning. If only the pure in heart see God, we need to understand what this word pure means. Listen, to be pure in heart means to be without hypocrisy. That's what it means. It means that your life is lived in a way that's consistent with Scripture. It means that you don't say something and then do something totally different. You don't say that Jesus is at the center of my life, and then when a bystander looks at you, they look like everything else is at the center except Jesus. It means to to, to be without hypocrisy. It's to be genuine or straight or sincere. Pure in heart carries with it this idea of being single-mindedness. It's not necessarily tunnel vision, but it is to be single-mindedness. Minded. What does single-minded mean? It's a life without folds. It's a life without division. Listen to the way the psalmist says it in Psalm 86, verse 11. You don't have to turn there. This is what it says in Psalm 86, 11. It says, teach me your way, O Lord. So the psalmist is saying, Lord, teach me your way, that I may walk in your truth. He's saying, I want to walk like you want me to walk. I want to walk in a way that's consistent with Scripture. And then he says this, unite my heart to fear your name. You see what he's saying there? In his prayer to God, he's saying, God, unite my heart to fear 
your name. A prayer for a united heart is a confession of a divided heart. Do you hear that? By him merely praying, God, unite my heart, he's confessing to God as well that my heart now might be divided. What does that mean? Listen, a divided heart is when a part of me wants to know God and pursue him, but another part of me wants to pursue the ways of the world and do that. It's a life with folds. On this side, man, I really want to love Jesus. But on this side, I really want to compromise biblical integrity and live life, you know, really the way I want to. Ever seen those uh, license plate tags that say a house divided? It has like a zigzag line right down the middle of it, and it has the spouse, like the husband's favorite sport team on one side, the wife's favorite sport team on another, and it says a house divided on it. Um, Let's just use Auburn and Alabama, okay? I was going to say Georgia and Georgia Tech, but there's really no Georgia Tech fans. But anyway, I kid, I kid, I kid. Um, You can be a fan all day. I get it. Um, Anyway, Auburn, Alabama, okay, because that is a thick rivalry. It's a thick rivalry. All of us understand it. But maybe the husband graduated from Alabama, the wife graduated from Auburn. They have this tag that represents their house, the division in their house, but at marriage, when they said their vows to one another, they, they committed to becoming one flesh there, right? So we're one flesh, but we still have a house that's divided because I follow Alabama and she follows Auburn. It's the same philosophy here, the same idea here. It's the picture of what a divided heart looks like. It, it says, yeah, I, I love Jesus. I really do love Jesus. I just love the ways of the world as well. And right now there's this tension going on in my heart where I want to follow the Lord, but I also want to compromise my biblical integrity and and do things in this relationship that I know I ought not be doing. It says I really want to follow Jesus and I want to live for Jesus, but simultaneously I want to chase this this job or this promotion or, or, or whatever it is so that I can have more fulfillment, more satisfaction in this life that I live. The psalmist is praying here for a united heart. He feels that tension, and he knows that there's parts of him that truly wants to be totally devoted to Jesus, but he also knows that the things of this world continue to entice him and lure him away, and he cries out to God, and he says, help me walk in a way that honors you, God. Help me walk in a way that honors your truth, and he says, unite my heart to holy things. What the psalmist is asking is he's saying, God, I want a sincere heart. I want a heart without hypocrisy. I want a heart that so loves you and so in tune with you that's not willing to compromise at anything that this world might offer me. He wants a heart that's fully devoted to Jesus. So my question again to you this morning is, is that your heart? Can you say that your heart is not divided? That the one person who occupies the throne of your heart is the one who deserves to occupy it, and his name is Jesus. But pure in heart has even a deeper meaning than that. It's a deeper meaning than that. It's a heart that is unadulterated. Pure in heart is a heart that's uncontaminated. It's a heart that's undefiled. It's untainted by anything. It it means to be completely clean. And to be completely clean means there can't even be an ounce of impurity in it. And if you think about this, what he's really saying is to be pure in heart is just to be like Jesus. 
Because Jesus is the only one who lived a life that was unadulterated. He was the only one who lived a life that was uncontaminated. He's the only one who lived a life that was spotless and clean and to perfection. He's the only one who did this. That's what it means. It means to be spotless and without sin. But what this does to me and what it does to you when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, is it puts us in a very difficult position because all of a sudden we recognize, well, that's not any of us. There's none of us in this room that exist in that way. If only the pure in heart see God, and the pure in heart are those who are like Jesus without sin, and none of us are pure in heart, and none of us are like Jesus, and none of us are like sin, then none of us will see God. That's the only logical outcome. Now I know there's at least one person in the room who's thinking, we know Trey, actually I think I'm a pretty good person. I don't think that, you know, I have an impure heart. I have a pure heart. If you really get to know me, you'll, you'll know how pure my heart is. This is why Paul so eloquently said in Romans 10.10, 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Because he knew that there was going to be someone that was tempted to say, well, I'm righteous, I'm pure. This is why later, Jeremiah, or earlier, Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or desperately sick is another translation of that. I mean, who can understand it? Jeremiah is saying, if I can't understand my own heart, then then nobody else is going to be able to understand it either. I know how it deceives me. I know how wicked it really is. Flip with me real quick over to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24. I love this psalm. It's It's one that you'll probably be a little bit familiar with, but I think that you'll see how the psalmist here is saying the same thing that Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. It says this in Psalm chapter 24, verse 3. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? What is he saying when he says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Okay, picture the Lord high up risen on this hill, and you're trying to ascend to get to his rightful place, okay? And it says, who shall stand in his holy place? The psalmist is asking, who would be able to stand in the presence of God? He's saying, who's able to see God? Sound familiar? Same thing Matthew 5.8 is basically saying. And then he says this, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. You know what clean hands means here? Clean hands is an outward, external, practical holiness. If you have clean hands, he's basically saying externally you live a life that's pure. Externally you live a life that's characterized by by holiness. So, So to stand in the presence of God, we must have clean hands, the psalmist is saying. To stand in the presence of God, we must be one who's characterized by external holiness. But But listen. That's not enough. That's not enough. Look what he says. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. He's saying that external holiness alone doesn't get you anywhere. External holiness has to be accompanied by internal holiness. He says your heart has to be pure so that you can live a holy life. And he's saying both of those things go hand in hand together so that you can stand in the presence of God. I love how Charles Spurgeon says it. Charles Spurgeon says this, There must be a work of grace in the core of the heart as well as in the palm of the hand, or our religion is a delusion. He's saying if these things don't go together, if we don't have external holiness and internal holiness, then our faith is not real. It's fictitious. 
It's imaginary. The psalmist says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who shall see God is what he's saying. He who has clean hands, external holiness, and he who has a pure heart, that's internal holiness. And then he goes on to say, who does not lift his soul to what is false. In other words, he's saying, who does not lift his soul, maybe your translation says, to another. You've heard that song, right? What is he just saying there? Who shall see the Lord? Those who have external holiness and internal holiness and whose heart is not divided. His heart is totally and completely surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, the man, the woman whose heart belongs to God and whose heart belongs to God alone. Here's what we have to understand this morning, church. Okay, this is where it starts to get good. Here's what you have to understand. Divided Worship destroys worshipers. Do you hear that? Divided worship destroys worshipers. When you and I hear the word worshiper, what we first think of is what we just did a moment ago. We think of worship through song, worship through music. And yes, that is one manifestation of the way that we worship. But you and I, by, the very, by, by our mere existence, are worshipers. We worship without ceasing. You are always worshiping. You worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 365 days of the year. And as long as you're alive, you are a worshiper. The, the, the problem, church family, you have to understand this. The problem is who or what becomes the object of your worship. You're always worshiping someone, and you're always worshiping something. But that person that, that, that you're supposed to be worshiping is reserved for God alone. You were designed and created to worship him. But what happens in this world that you and I live in is everything in the world is competing to steal your worship away from you so that you give your worship to someone other than God. That's the enemy's tactic. Paul David Tripp said this this week. Okay, Paul David Tripp's a pastor. He's a Presbyterian pastor. I would highly recommend following him. He says a lot of really, really good stuff. But this is something that he said that I was like, man, there it is again. As I was preparing this, I wasn't even looking for it. It just popped up on my, my uh, social media feed. And this is what he said. He said, giving your tithe, he said, the problem with giving your tithe is not your uh, debt. He said, giving, the problem with giving your tithe is not found in your debt. It's found in your worship. What was Paul David Tripp trying to say? He was saying, if you worship the things of the world, you're going to continue to accumulate debt. But if you worship the things of God, you'll have absolutely no problem giving back to him. He's saying this all boils down to who or what you worship. Let me, let me give you another example of this. I, I, I hate harping on these things because I... They were harped on me so much as a child that I, I always hesitate to even say it because I believe that we as a church can change the way that we think about some things. I really do think that. But listen, the, the way that the world is going, travel ball has become literally the object of some people's worship. Some moms and some dads are living their lives vicariously through their children. And they are, they are literally showing their children that this is way more important than the things of God. And when your children leave your home and they make everything in the world much more important than they do the church, you're going to look back in the rearview mirror and say, I wish I would have. Now you can. You can change that. But what it's doing is it's trying to divide our worship. 
Where are you going to really give your allegiance? Where are you going to really give your time? Where are you going to really give, give, give your, your resources? Where are you going to devote those things? I was having a, a conversation with a father. This is a true story. Having a conversation with a dad who was talking about this very issue. And he said, man, I just need prayer. Prayer because I haven't been given faithfully to the church because every weekend we're having to rent hotels for our travel ball team. Prayer because I haven't been faithful to the church because every weekend, you know, for my son to play and to get better and to have a chance to get a scholarship and to have a chance to go pro, which does not increase the likelihood, just look at it, it hasn't increased the likelihood at all. Maybe you think that, but it just doesn't increase the likelihood at all. Statistics have not changed. There's still a very, very small few of people who get there. Um, so anyway, you see what's happening. Like the world is starting to divide the heart. It's starting to pull the heart in different directions. Divided worship would destroy every worshiper. Our worship was created and designed to, to be directed towards God and towards God alone. Let me say it this way. You cannot expect your neighbor to worship the God that you worship on Sunday when he's already worshiping the gods that you worship Monday through Saturday. If your neighbor that you're trying to share Jesus with sees that you really have an allegiance that's committed to another God, he's not going to buy into the God that you worship on Sunday when he sees that you're giving all of your time and affection and attention to the, God, to the gods that you worship throughout the week. Divided worship will destroy worshipers. I thought that was going to go a lot better than it did. Second, the pure in heart regard God, regard God alone as their highest good. The pure in heart, what we're talking about this morning, regard God alone as their highest good. Church, come on, let's get real about this. You know what we regard, many of us in the American context, you know what we regard as our highest good? We regard our comfort as our highest good. I'll go wherever God tells me to go as long as it's comfortable going there. I'll do whatever God wants me to do as long as it's comfortable for me to do it. I will set no limitations on what God asks out of me as long as it's comfortable for me to do that. Maybe it's not comfort. Maybe it's security. I'll go wherever God wants me to go as long as I feel safe in going there. I'll do whatever God wants me to do as long as you can promise that I'll be safe in doing it. Maybe it's not comfort. Maybe it's not security. Maybe for you it's something else. Maybe it's something like popularity, status, or approval. I'll live for God as long as my friends accept it. I'll live for God as long as my likes on social media continue to increase or as long as my following on social media continues to go upward. I'll live for Jesus and, and do whatever as long as your status, your popularity continues to grow. Maybe it's not that. Maybe for you it's preference. I'll live for Jesus as long as we as long as we heat the room to the temperature you like or cool the room to the temperature you like or change the seats to the seats that you like or maybe even the floors, maybe they're too slanted and you want them flat. As long as we do those things, oh, and by the way, the music, as long as we can adjust the music to my preference, I'll live for Jesus. I won't have any issue with that at all. Listen, the pure in heart regard God alone as their highest good. They will go to any environment under any circumstances to do anything as long as God is there. They're willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that they're existing in the presence and in the favor of the Lord God Almighty. And my question to you is why can we not get that and let that sink into the depth of our soul? Do you realize that any country you go in, that church functions differently than it does in America? You go overseas, let Bruce take you to some places. 
These people are worshiping under buildings in a basement that's, that's filled with mildew and mold because that's where God is meeting them. And they're willing to go there in, in a place of discomfort, quite frankly. That's not safe. And they're spreading the gospel like wildfire. Christianity is growing in every single place other than America. Y'all realize that? And for anyone who's telling you that Christianity is dying, they're, they're lying. Just do the research. In some of the hardest places of the world, Christianity is literally taking over. And why? Because we, we learned a long time ago that persecution is the seed of the church. As things get more and more difficult, that's not a bad thing, it's a good thing because we're going to weed out all the Pharisees. We're going to weed out all the people who are just Christians in name only. I told the students this this past week, and I don't know why I need to go there, but, but here's what it is. You, re, you remember in Acts chapter 11? We, we learn in Acts chapter 11 where we derive this term Christian. It says there in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's what it says. Do you know that when the disciples were first called Christians, that was a derogatory term? They weren't calling them Christians just because they loved them and they wanted to give them a, you know, a, a fluffy way of identifying themselves. No. They were calling them that because they were insulting them for living a life like Christ. Oh, you're one of those people. It was a derogatory term. It was like spitting in their face. That's what, we, that's what they viewed that as. But so, so if that's where they were first called Christians, what were they called before they were called Christians? Well, Acts, Acts chapter 11 tells you. Thanks, youth. The disciples were first called Christians. You can't be a Christian if you're not a disciple of Jesus. What is a disciple of Jesus? A disciple of Jesus is one who sits at the, the feet of their rabbi, their teacher, and takes on the life of that rabbi. Whatever you tell me, that's what I'm willing to do. Wherever you send me, that's where I'm willing to go. However you want me to live, however you want me to, whatever you want me to do. I'm just willing to sit at your feet and become you. That's essentially what it said. And Jesus is sitting there and he's saying, that's exactly what my disciples are supposed to do. They're supposed to sit at my feet, under my word, hear from me, and then go put it into practice. But God, that's not comfortable. God, not only is that not comfortable, it might cause me to lose my family, my friends, Perhaps, perhaps when I do this, it gets in the way of the other things that I'm supposed to do. The pure in heart regard God alone as their highest good. There's another thing that I want to show you this morning, and then the band's going to come out, and that is this. Let us prioritize the kingdom of self, or let us not prioritize the kingdom of self over the kingdom of God. Church family, we have to be about the kingdom of God. The, the aim of our lives should be to build his kingdom, not ours. You realize that we, when we exist, when we do this together, that's when a movement really starts to take place. When all of us put at the top of our list that as our main priority is the kingdom of God, not necessarily the kingdom of self. Okay, now how do we actually do this? I want to give you two things to walk away with this morning. This is going to be real quick. The band's coming out, okay? Um, the band's going to come out. I'm going to say that again. Um, so, on cue. Good job, Matt. Hey, by the way, by the way, you know all of this happens on Sunday because of Eric Jackson back here. Like, let's put our hands together and thank Eric Jackson. I want to give you two things as we walk away this morning. Number one, Jesus is concerned with your heart. Ma'am, sir, I know that you came here and I don't know what you were expecting when you showed up this morning, but here's what you need to hear. 
Jesus is concerned with your heart. We spend a lot of time, like these people in Scripture, trying to clean up the outside when he's chasing after our hearts. The heart is the core of who we are. It determines everything else that we do. Listen to Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisees. He says, you hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. What does that mean? You can't see. (laughs) Just talked about that. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also might be clean. The scriptures are true. When we are born again, we receive a new heart. God doesn't come in and take our current heart and renovate our heart and then put it back in our chest. No, he actually transplants a new heart within us. A heart that looks like him and desires him and hungers for him. I love how Ezekiel 36 says it. And I will give you, not a renovated heart, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God doesn't say, church family, that he'll give us a perfect heart. That's not what he's after. He's after a pure heart. A heart that's single in his devotion to him and him alone. My first question to you is this. If God is after your heart, if he's concerned with your heart, is your heart truly surrendered to Jesus? Is it truly surrendered to him and him alone? There's a second thing. Not only is Jesus concerned with your heart, but Jesus is also concerned with your holiness. You hear that? He's concerned with your holiness. Holiness is an indispensable prerequisite to see God. My favorite verse is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and be holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You want to see the Lord? There's an indispensable prerequisite. And that's to have an internal and external holy life. Well, Trey... I don't have an internal holy life. Well, here's the beauty of the gospel. The reason you and I can see God is because there is one who was perfect and holy in our place. His name is Jesus. There was one who was pure in heart, one who was fully devoted to the loving Father, one who bore our corruption and gave us his purity. There is one who lived the life that we were supposed to live, but because we did and he then went and died the death that was ours to die. The beauty of the gospel is that we aren't trapped by the tragedy of an impure heart. The beauty of the gospel is that while we are sinking in the the impurity of our own heart, God, full of love, mercy, and grace, sent Jesus on a mission to rescue us from what? To rescue us from us. So that we might be completely and totally surrendered to him. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I know this is so Baptist of us, but I think with all of my heart that you need this time this morning to ask yourself a sincere question. Do you have a divided heart? Do you have a divided heart? Can you say that God and God alone is the object of your worship? Can you honestly say with integrity this morning that there is nothing right now in your life competing for the affection that belongs to God, for the attention that belongs to God, for the allegiance that belongs only to God, that you have an undivided heart. Maybe for you, you're recognizing that you have tried to fill your heart with all the wrong things. Everything that this world has promised has not provided for you. 
And maybe today is the first time in your life you're recognizing, I just need to surrender my life to Jesus. I need to give him the entirety, the totality of my heart. Maybe you're here today and you've already made that decision. But quite frankly, everything in this world continues to compete for the heart that you have that belongs to God. And you can't shake that temptation. You can't shake those things that continue to come after you. Maybe today you just need to turn back to God and say, you know what, Lord, forgive me for allowing other things to occupy the throne of my life and help me dethrone those things and enthrone you once again. Two people I'm talking to. One, maybe you don't know Jesus and today's the day you need to come to know him. Two, those of you who know Jesus, yet you have succumbed to the pressures of the world and you have now started to become wayward in your decisions. Father, Would you help us leave here with undivided, united hearts that want to live for you and know you in the way that you created us to do. And God, will give you all the honor and all the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray.